0: terribly wrong a seemingly normal person has turned out to be an absolute killer join me as we explore some of the most prolific serial killers and homicides of the 20th century you're listening to seven all right thank you for joining me tonight for another edition of 7 I'm your host K-Town and tonight we're going to be talking about a gr- and tonight we're going to be talking about a killer with no bounds not an ounce of remorse and his name is Randy Kraft and he was considered highly intelligent politically active loyal to his friends committed to his work and a killer of 67 people my special guest is Dennis Madougal and he's written a book about Randy Kraft. It's called Angel of Darkness, The True Story of Randy Kraft and the Most Heinous Murder Spree. It is available for your reading pleasure on Amazon, in Kindle Audiobook, Hardcover, and Paperback. Now a little more about our special guest, Dennis. He's also working on an upcoming book. It's called Operation White Rabbit, LSD, the DA. And The Fate of the Acid King, it is due out on, uh, it looks like May 2020. And when that comes out, uh, Dennis will have authored over a dozen biographies, true crime sagas, novels, as well as hundreds of newspaper and magazine articles in a career that has spanned over five decades. And we're not going to waste any more time. Here is my special guest, Dennis McDougal, here to talk about his book called Angel of Darkness. (laughs) Welcome, Dennis, to... Seven. I appreciate your time. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about the book called Angel of Darkness, the true story of Randy Kraft and the most heinous murder spree. That one is available on Kindle hard, hardcover paperback. And I don't think it's, it's not available in the audio book, is it, Dennis?
1: You know, you got me at exactly the right time because uh, it's coming out on audiobook next month. And in fact, I just got the uh, cover art uh, day before yesterday and it looks terrific.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Okay. All right. So we look forward to that. And when that comes out, I'll have that link for you as well. Uh, But Dennis, thank you for coming on the show. And um, why don't you take a moment to tell my listeners, you know, a little bit about yourself and then why you wrote the book about Randy Kraft.
1: All right. Well, I'm uh, an aging uh, newspaper reporter. Remember newspapers? Uh, They they, they were around a few years ago, but uh, there may be, yeah, maybe two or three less somewhere in the Midwest, uh, I think. But uh, I was um, I was a staff writer for uh, many years, uh, over a, a decade uh, at the Los Angeles Times uh, back in the uh, 1980s and 1990s. And um, I I, uh, I came across this. Um, this murder spree. Um, you know, which always piques the interest of a a newspaper reporter, or should anyway. Uh, And uh, the guy looked like uh, Casper Milktoast. I mean, he was a a little squirrely guy with a mustache, um, a a computer nerd back when nobody knew what computers were. Uh, And I started following the case uh, more closely after he was captured with a dead Marine sitting in the car next to him um, because uh, he struck me as being the least likely murderer, let alone serial murderer uh, that I'd ever seen in my life. So the, the guy's name was Randy Steven Kraft and uh, he was captured in 1980. Three, I believe, 82 or 83 in, um, uh, Los Angeles, uh, actually a suburb of Los Angeles down in Orange County. And, um, turns out he made a hobby of, um, picking up, uh, hitchhikers, usually, uh, servicemen, Marines, sailors, uh, soldiers. And, um, doping them up with uh, doctored beer. He put, I don't know, Vicodin and um, Valium and other uh, drugs in the beer. Uh, And then trussing them up, um, having his way with them, uh, killing them and leaving them by the side of the road. And he'd been doing this for 13 years. He started in 1970 and did not get caught until 1983. Uh, There's still some controversy as to how many people he actually killed. All of his victims were male. Most of them were, um, or a good number of them anyway, were hitchhiking um, servicemen uh, from Camp Pendleton and uh, the Navy bases in Southern California. But then he started, you know, later in the decade, in the 1970s, he started um, branching out because he was in the computer business. So he he went uh, all over the U.S. Um, um, consulting on, on uh, the the new business of um, personal computing. And he exported murder from California to um, Washington State, to Oregon, where he did, did in a, a dozen or so people uh, as far east as uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, possibly um, Florida. Uh, all told, as best the, the authorities were um, eventually able to um, sum it up. He looks to have murdered somewhere between uh, 67 and 92 men over a 13-year period in California. Yeah. So, you know, there was substance enough right there for a book. But at the same time that he was doing his murders, there were two others in Southern California. Uh, one was a guy named uh, Patrick Kearney, uh, again, another science uh, engineer, a guy who worked for um, uh, for aerospace uh, out in Santa Monica. And his nickname was the trash Bag killer because what he did was um, uh, kill and rape uh, young men uh, slice slice them up in the the bathtub and then um, put the body parts into uh, um, trash bags and leave the trash bags along the side of the road. That was in one guy. Then there was another guy named William Bonin who had a, uh, a crew of a half dozen or so uh, helpers who uh, would accompany him out on uh, trolling expeditions to pick up uh, hitchhikers and, uh, young kids uh, in his van on the weekends and his nickname uh, was the freeway killer uh, Randy's that is uh, you know the the, the protagonist of uh, Angel of Darkness Randy's nickname was uh, the scorecard killer because as it turned out you know he um, uh, he kept a, uh, a notebook um, with uh, notations for each one of his kills, or at least that's what the uh, uh, the police eventually interpreted uh, this list as being, and they called it the scorecard. So um, he had somewhere between 62 and 67 names uh, on that uh, on his list. So that's uh, kind of the basis of where um, the notion of his having killed the 67, uh, people had you know, came from originally. Uh, but then, you know, there were uh, far more, especially those that were out of state that, uh, that were not on the scorecard and, um, he was deemed to have been responsible for even more. Uh, what makes this even more intriguing is that all three of these serial killers who were operating generally, uh, in Southern California in the late 1970s and early 1980s uh, were getting away with murder, literally, Uh, in part because most of their victims were male. Uh, The newspapers at the time uh, refused to acknowledge that there was such a thing as a gay serial killer. Um, And in fact, you know, at least in the 1970s, um, homosexuality was uh, uh, verboten uh, both on the airwaves and the newspapers uh, and, and was just not talked about, was not acknowledged at all in Southern California. So we have these three guys who are out doing this pretty regularly, uh, and uh, no one's paying any attention to them because uh, both law enforcement, and the media uh, didn't recognize that uh, homosexuality even existed. So um, this scenario, if you will, became the basis for uh, Angel of Darkness, my first book. And, um, you know... um, I won't give away the ending, but um, I'm sure you uh, have figured out by now that um, uh, that Randy was stopped. Uh, So were the two other serial killers. Uh, And uh, once more, um, people were, um, or at least young men, uh, military men were um, uh, were able to hitchhike. Without uh, fear of being raped and murdered. <laughs> no, no. Unfortunately, it's entirely too real. Uh, I, I can vouch for that part. Um, yeah, it's, but you know, Randy Kraft is still alive. Uh, uh, the other two, I think, Kearney, Kearney may be alive. Uh, he was a couple of years ago. He was he was um, uh, the chaplain's assistant at uh, Vacaville. Um, State prison in California. Um, funny how these guys, once they get into prison, uh, find uh, uh, find Jesus and uh, uh, turn over a new leaf.
0: Yeah, how convenient.
1: Uh, yes, um, Randy, of course, uh, uh, to his uh, credit or uh, or the reverse thereof, um, never did. He never acknowledged that he was uh, responsible for any of these murders. He maintained his uh, innocence throughout his trial and um, uh, to my knowledge maintains his innocence to the, the present day. He, uh, he occupies a, a cell on death row uh, in San Quentin. Uh, he's now pushing 80, I guess. Uh, looks like a little old man. Um, and, um, you know, up until a few years ago, his older sister was uh, his uh, web mistress. Uh, he had a website. I don't think he does it any longer. He might, I'm not sure. Uh, but, you know, he maintained that, uh, he was, um, uh, th- that the law enforcement ran shot over him and that he was, uh, he-, he was pure as the driven snow, never was quite be- able to uh, adequately explain how uh, a dead Marine with his pants around his knees uh, was in the car when he was arrested um, or the artifacts that he had in his garage from um, a couple dozen of the murders Um, but you know, uh, he stuck to his story, you know? Um, and I, I don't know what that means, you know?
0: Well, I want to go back and I want, i want to go back a bit. Um, because I do want (laughs) to, this guy is unreal. I'd like to get some type of, um, overview of his, of his early life. If you don't mind, like what, what do we know about where he was from and, and what his upbringing was like? Because, I would like to know if he started off right away killing or was that something that he progressed into?
1: You know, you're asking all the right questions because that's precisely what I was asking myself when I got into uh, covering the story. Uh, I, I first started covering the story for the Long Beach Press-Telegram, and then I, I went to work at the L.A. Times. So I, I started following it then when I, I was working uh, for, for, the, uh, for the Times. Um, and those were the very same questions that uh, that I was asking. I I don't know even at this late date, like almost thirty years after the fact, uh, whether I have adequate answers for you. I mean, uh, what I wanted to know was what makes a, a serial killer, especially one as prolific as Randy Kraft, what makes them tick. Was it some sort of uh, you know? Trauma when they were a child? Did somebody drop them on their head, or uh, was it uh, genetic? You know, you go back to the old, uh, the old scientific saw: uh, was it uh, nature or nurture? Uh, Was it in his blood? Uh, Did he learn how to do this? How did this come about? Anyway, long and the short of it, as far as Randy was concerned, was that he was raised um, the uh, only son of a uh, an aircraft uh, worker, um, probably an alcoholic, uh, and his um, um, uh, I don't know I, I, you wouldn't call her a I guess a uh, she was the daughter of a farmer. Uh, and uh, Kraft's father uh, found her while he was bumming across the U.S. back in the 1930s. Uh, but at any rate, they married. They had three daughters. And Randy, uh was the last of the litter. Um, and uh, all of his sisters were substantially older than him. So he sort of wound up uh, growing up in Westminster, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles in Orange County,
0: uh,
1: out in what was then uh, sort of a semi-agricultural area. Uh, He, by all appearances, was something of a little prince because the the three older girls and his mother doted on him. But as I said before, the father was an alcoholic and uh, when he came home, uh, he there was a history of him uh, knocking his kids and his wife around, but especially uh, uh, coming down hard on Randy. Uh, there was a um, a report given in evidence during his trial about how when he was a toddler, um, he, quote, fell, in quote, down the steps of the house and was unconscious and uh, had to be um, uh, taken by uh, automobile to the nearest ER, which was a couple miles away. And he revived apparently on the way to the uh, emergency room and uh, the doctors gave him uh, a clean bill of health and sent him home. But, um, you know, that was offered up by the defense during the trial as evidence of his having had a head injury when he was young uh, and and suggested that that might have contributed to his uh, faulty thinking. They also did an early um, CAT scan on his head, uh, positron emission test—it's called—to uh, see whether or not there was any electrical activity that was um, uh, considered uh, unusual or bizarre. And sure enough, you know, you look at his uh, PET scan, compare it to that of a normal person. And uh, he did have uh, raging red areas uh, in the brain, um, uh, in the occipital lobe and the parietal, lobe, parietal lobes in particular, that, that indicated that uh, he he was having bizarre brain activity where normal people did not. Uh, I, all these things, you know, I mean, all these indications. Um that something was wrong with him early on, uh, really didn't uh, come to any kind of fruition because he went all the way through school as a straight day student uh, and uh, got a scholarship um, to one of the Claremont Colleges, which is um, uh, you know a, a prestige uh, private liberal arts uh, college in Southern California. Uh, he was, um, he, he did well as an undergraduate and uh, joined the Air Force shortly after he uh, got his degree. Um, it was only when he was in the Air Force and uh, was, uh, came out of the closet in 1970 as a gay that things began to uh, go south. Um, there were indications early on that uh, something was amiss with him because his college sweetheart uh, later told me that when they uh, when when he was still passing as uh, heterosexual, he used her as uh, you know something of a uh, um, a mask.
0: Or a beard or a,
1: uh, a beard yeah a beard cover for his uh, his homosexuality they he he experimented uh, experimented on her early on they would go out for long drives uh, out across the desert and uh, even down into Mexico uh, Baja uh, and uh, he would um, you know, offer her a beer and um, un- unbeknownst to her, he would lace it with uh, one drug or another. And, you know, used her as a guinea pig to see uh, how much or how little it took to, uh, to knock her out. And she didn't realize any of this, of course, until many years later. Ironically enough, she became um, a, a psychologist. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the, the fact that uh, back when she was uh, uh, young and naive, that uh, she would be the uh, uh, an experiment for a serial killer was, I don't know, kind of interesting training for uh, being a, a, a psychological counselor later in her life, I guess. Uh, nonetheless, I mean, all all of the all of this stuff, you know, was not directly indicative of a guy who was going to uh, take this up as a as a secret hobby. But in fact, he did. Uh, we don't know exactly when his first kill was. Probably, probably 1970. Certainly no later than 1971. Uh, the the earliest victim that we know about was uh, a Marine, naturally, uh, that he picked up um, outside of Camp Pendleton. And <clears throat> um, the guy was reported AWOL, and his body was found a couple of weeks later uh, in a remote part of uh, Orange County. Uh, and that began the spree that... Uh, just, you know, grew and accelerated over the ensuing 13 years.
0: Do you know anything about how he was choosing his victims?
1: His victims of choice tended to be uh, military. Um, and uh, among the things that um, the uh, homicide detectives found in his garage and uh, in the back of his car after his arrest uh, were uh, uh, Lots of uh, gay military magazines uh, and porn that involved uh, um, soldiers and sailors. Uh, those, that that was where he that was his default, uh, if you will. If he go out trolling and he didn't have any luck at the gay bars or uh, or <clears throat> picking up hitchhikers. Uh, which you know was his other source of victims. He'd uh, he'd go to um, uh, the main gate of uh, either uh, a Marine base like El Toro or Camp Pendleton um, or uh, a, a naval base. He trolled uh, San Diego an awful lot, and he'd look for um, uh, sailors or Marines or soldiers who were. Uh, on leave or uh, you know, on weekend liberty, uh, who uh, didn't have a car, and he would um, drive by and, and say, "Hey, you know, um, I've been there, done that. I was in the Air Force. Uh, I know what it's like when you don't have a transportation, and you're in Southern California. Here I am, hop in the car and have a beer."
0: What was his? Um, what was the main area? you know, where he was looking for these victims? Were they all up and down California? I didn't know, you know, I've been in the military too. I'm not aware of any uh, Marine bases there, but t- can you tell us more about that, the general area where he stayed? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, uh, up until um, probably the uh, the late 80s, early 90s, uh, when uh, the bases started uh, shutting down, uh, California, especially um, San Diego and the Long Beach area of uh, Los Angeles were um, uh, were hotbeds of, uh, of, of military uh, personnel. Uh, anybody who was headed for uh, a, a posting in, in the Pacific, uh, had to go through Southern California. And um, Camp Pendleton, I believe, at least insofar as um, acreage, acreage is concerned, remains the, uh, the largest uh, marine uh, base in the United States. Uh, it's a huge swath of territory between Uh, Orange County and San Diego County along the, uh, 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 along the Pacific coast highway and um, Marines from all over the country uh, came there for basic training for uh, dispatch to um, postings outside of the United States. And, um, and camp Pendleton uh, had, uh, an adjunct base for the um, mil, uh, for the uh, um, aviation uh, portion of uh, of the Marines and and, uh, and, and the uh, naval trainees as well, I believe, uh, called El Toro, El Toro uh, Marine Base, uh, also in Orange County. Um, was uh, a was home of the um, uh, uh, the, the flight branch for uh, the Marines, and you also had naval bases. Uh, San Diego still has uh, perhaps the largest uh, naval base in in on the West Coast, um, but there was also a naval base in Long Beach that's now completely shut down. But uh, that, too, was uh, a place where uh, thousands, if not uh, hundreds of thousands of sailors um, uh, shuffled through, including myself, back when, during Vietnam, I was uh, stationed in in Long Beach. Um, There are all sorts of military bases that are no more in Southern California. But back in the '70s and uh, even through you know most of the 1980s, they were thriving, and um, uh, those guys uh, you know needed to blow off steam on weekends, and um, Randy was uh, more than happy to um, to help them
0: out. Can we talk about his relationship with uh, Jeff? And I don't know how to pronounce his last. Is it Sealing? Sing- Sealing. Yeah. Sealing yeah um
1: curious relationship um you know randy was i think i mean he was certainly in his early thirties uh when when he met uh jeff and seely was right out of high school he was uh, uh he, he was a um a budding chef and um <clears throat> when he got out of high school, he went to work for a, a candy um, a candy maker in, in Long Beach, and uh, he and Randy hooked up. <clears throat> they um, they bought a house together. Uh, they socialized with um, uh, other gay couples. They went on you know vacations to Key West and. Uh, Mexico and uh, and um, up in the mountains and Big Bear and Lake Arrowhead, uh, he was part of the the th- thriving uh, gay culture in Long Beach, which was uh, uh, pretty big and uh, and out in the open. Uh, at least by the early 1980s, at the beginning of the AIDS crisis. Um, so Jeff. Uh, And Randy were together um, at a time when Randy was uh, sneaking out of the house on weekends, um, picking up um, sailors and Marines, and later on, uh, picking up two at a time, uh, drugging them, uh, raping them and then uh, killing them and leaving their bodies in remote parts of Southern California. The whole time this was going on, and, you know, uh, the, the cops did a pretty thorough job after the fact of investigating. Uh, Jeff was completely um, oblivious. He had no idea. Uh, Randy was, you know, whenever Randy would uh, bring a Marine home and uh, truss him up, uh, he made certain that uh, Jeff was not around, that he was off visiting somebody else. Uh, Randy lived, um, you know, he lived two lives. Uh, Three, if you want to throw in the fact that he uh, tried to pass himself off in the... um, business community as uh, being straight Uh, so you know you had Randy the uh, straight uh, computer consultant Randy the uh, gay homeowner and uh, Randy the secret uh, weekend serial killer all living in one head Uh, and um, Jeff who was his roommate uh, a lover and co-owner of his home, um, had no idea, and you know uh, uh, said as much to investigators repeatedly after uh, Randy's arrest, to their satisfaction, uh, such that he was never arrested. I interviewed
0: him. We know that sure. they were picking up gay men together. Were, were those gay men getting back safely or did Randy, once those gay men left his presence and he t- took them back to wherever, was he killing those men or were they pretty much just left alone?
1: The ones that he picked up?
0: Yes. And, and that he had a threesome with that they were able to talk them into having a threesome with oh. Jeff, were those men oh. left alone or no? What?
1: Well, it's you know it's hard to say after the fact because the only uh, witnesses to it um, were either the uh, the serviceman who was in the threesome who would, did not then uh, nor uh, now want to talk about it uh, and the other two were uh, Randy who obviously hasn't said a word uh, and Jeff. Who said that? Yes, they did have these threesomes, but that um, uh, that nothing ever happened from it. So you know, it's it's hard to pin down, uh, you know, a clear answer to your question. Um,
0: but but none of those names ended up on Randy's scorecard, is what I'm saying.
1: Oh, oh no 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 none, none of those none of those none of those guys. If Jeff if Jeff was involved in it. Um, uh, the the uh, you know, the third third part of the menage a trois, uh, the military man was uh, was safe. He didn't um, you know nothing happened to him. Randy did this killing uh, strictly on his own because that was part of his. I mean that that was how he maintained uh, um, his predator status for so many years without anybody uh, being the wiser.
0: Right. That happens a lot. A lot of people don't believe that's possible that a spouse cannot know that their significant other is, is a serial killer. But that happens a lot, even with like Dennis Rader, his wife had no clue what he was doing.
1: Well, yeah. And John Wayne Gacy, you know, same story. The These guys, uh, and, and you know, it's, it's uh it's probably if you if you were able to look at the uh, the literature involving uh, marriages, both um, straight and gay, or relationships across the board, you would find that this is probably more prevalent than you would imagine. Because um, everybody has their own life uh, in the best. Uh, relationships, the best marriages, there are no secrets Uh, but you know uh, you know as well as I do that uh, you know these people yourself, you may in fact be one of these people who have a close relationship with somebody and, and they don't know anything at all about an aspect of your life or vice versa so Fortunately, with most people, uh, those secret lives don't include murder. Uh, but uh, in the in cases when it does, uh, it is not all that surprising that the spouse or the significant other uh, doesn't have a clue.
0: Okay, so let's let's talk about when Randy first popped up on the radar and how long was it before they actually thought that they had a serial killer on the loose? Well,
1: the FBI in the case of uh, Randy and the other two serial killers in Southern California, uh, never entered the picture. Uh, this was, uh, this was investigated by, and, um, uh, and ultimately, uh, the, the perpetrators were brought to earth, uh, Solely by um, Southern California uh, law enforcement, uh, Orange, County, Orange County Sheriff's Office, uh, LAPD Homicide, uh, and even local police departments got involved. But this was before um, the FBI actively or actively got involved in um, profiling. Um, potential ser- serial killers before uh, uh, the now um, you know uh, famous um, FBI profiler founded the uh, behavioral uh, uh, arm of, uh, of the FBI so it, it wasn't until the mid 80s that they got into profiling uh, they may have uh dipped into the findings of the uh, Orange County uh, Sheriff's Department um, and certainly LAPD homicide. Uh, There was a a sergeant in L.A. homicide that was a close source of mine uh, who's since passed away, so I guess I could use his name. Back then, I kept it confidential, but his name was Sergeant Al Set, and and Al was um, <clears throat> uh, into profiling these guys uh, early on, even before the FBI got involved, um, trying to pinpoint what ki- kind of mind, what kind of background uh, you, you'd be looking for when you wanted to trip up a serial killer.
0: Well, so that's interesting there that the FBI never inserted themselves and you said it was before profiling. So I can totally understand that. Um, can, can we, can, can you tell us about, and I know DNA was not available back then, but how did they start, start to connect Randy to these murders?
1: Well, uh, in point of fact, they did not. And that's part of the story. I mean, in fact, it's a an important part of the story of uh, darkness because, um, all three of these guys, uh, Randy Kraft, um, uh, Patrick Kearney, the trash bag killer, and William Bonin, the freeway killer, all three of these guys were caught um, by accident, by uh, patrolling, by uh, by people, uh, in in Randy's, Randy's case, Uh, a couple of CHP uh, officers pulled him over because he was weaving on the San Diego Freeway one night. And that was how they discovered, you know, he had this dead Marine in the car next to him, which raised a lot of questions. So they backed into the case from that point and figured out all that uh, came out at his trial several years later. Uh... Based on that initial arrest, same with uh, uh, Patrick Kearney. They discovered him uh, with um, a trash bag uh, full of body parts. and uh, and that then raised questions, and they uh, they were able to uh, piece together his murder story. Uh, in point of fact, <clears throat> in part, as I said early on in the interview, because both law enforcement and the media ignored uh, the gay lifestyle uh, in the 70s and the 80s and did not acknowledge uh, gay murder as as a thing. Um, the, uh, you know, no one was, no one was paying any attention. There was there was nothing on the radar. Uh, if you don't acknowledge a murder, then it did not happen. So no one connected the dots. No one was bothering to take a look out there and, and say, well, geez, you know, this uh, murder here in Gardner Grove uh, with uh, this guy who was in the Marines is... Kind of similar to this uh, murder of this guy up, up here in um, Santa Barbara, um, who was in the in the Navy. Uh, they both are the same age. They're both male. They're both young. They're both uh, you know in the military. Uh, maybe we ought to look for some guy who's targeting these types of people. That never happened because both the media. And law enforcement refused to acknowledge that such a killer existed. So Randy literally got away with murder for years.
0: Did anybody say that they saw a consistent type of vehicle near where these bodies were found? Um and and how no, were they found? I mean, because normally, you know, if you dump something on a, the only way somebody would find something on highway is they happen to go maybe use the bathroom over there, or maybe, uh, you know, the the workers are doing something on the side of the highway. I mean, how were those bodies being found?
1: You have to recognize that Los Angeles and Southern California, in, in general, uh, forty and fifty years ago, uh, was a, a lot less populated. Uh, at least in, in terms of density uh, than it is today. Uh, so you could get on a highway, you could get on the 405 freeway or the 605 or one of the other, you know, many other uh, interstates crisscrossing in Southern California. And in, uh, you know, 20, 30 minutes time, you could be out in the sticks and, uh, you could go up into the mountains, which Randy did, uh, and uh, find remote areas to dump bodies, dump body parts. And, uh, uh, and, and you know, you probably could not do the same thing today because the population is uh, much higher and uh, construction goes all the way out to the desert. Uh, you'd have to travel for a couple of hours out into the Mojave before you get to an area that was remote enough to uh, dump a body and not have it found immediately. Um, So I I guess the answer to your question is that back in the 70s and the 80s, uh, Randy and Patrick and Bonin um, uh, did what they were going to do, Threw the bodies in the back of the car and went for a drive. And we <clears throat> were able to find uh, uh, remote enough areas uh, that are now all built up. Uh, in fact, I, one of Randy's favorite uh, dumping spots was uh, an area called Lake Elsinore, uh, which was virtually you know, a, a dry lake, between um, uh, the Pacific coastline and um, uh, the Coachella Valley uh, where Palm Springs is located. Uh, And there was nothing out there. So he would dump bodies and and, uh, drive away and no one would discover them for a week, maybe longer. Uh, Today, that that entire area is... uh, Chock a block with condos and uh, shopping centers, and you know uh, there's no place to dump a body. Uh, times were different, and um, habits were different, and uh, social mores were different. All of those things uh, fed into um, Randy's ability to practice serial murder with impunity.
0: I didn't ask, but I'd like to know what was Randy's preferred method of killing. Was it, was he strangling them? Was he stabbing? Them? What what was he doing?
1: Well, uh, as near as we can tell, reconstructing from uh, the bodies and the body count, uh, what he liked to do was um, uh, remove their belts um, and the shoelaces from their shoes. And use them to uh, garrote the, his victims. He would uh, tie them up with their own shoelaces, and then, uh, and then, you know, use a, a, a belt around their neck to uh, tighten uh, to the point of them passing out, uh, and then uh, releasing so that they would, uh, you know, come back to life. And he just kept that up until uh, eventually they uh, they suffocated, they choked to death. Uh, he was um, he was uh, a particularly uh, vicious and cruel sadist. And um, uh, you know, I mean, in a sense, I, I, that's one of the things I suppose that um, intrigued me from the beginning because it's hard to wrap your head around uh, what makes such a a creature exist in the first place. You know, I mean, uh, even a jaguar, even a mountain lion or a grizzly bear uh, don't arbitrarily torture and kill uh, just for pleasure. I mean, that's, not in there, they don't do that. I mean, they 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 do have a reason for uh, being predators. But in the case of a monster, uh, a, uh, a a freak like uh, Randy Kraft, um, that excuse doesn't exist. I don't know. I mean, and I have to say, you know, after years of studying these people, because uh, I've written a, a couple of books on, um, or actually three different books on serial killers. Uh, I still don't have an answer. I do not know what makes these people tick outside of uh, a, I don't know, they were infected somewhere along the line uh, with evil. And that's what they are. They are something out of, uh, out of a nightmare.
0: They really are. Do you know if he's had any type of psychological evaluations? I'm
1: fairly certain that you know. I mean, I've spoken with a couple of his appeals attorneys, and uh, and he won't submit to uh, you know voluntarily uh, being interviewed or uh, any kind of uh, physiological testing. He's uh, he's always maintained his innocence that uh, he's been. Uh, vilified and misunderstood Um, one of the interesting side stories as far as I'm concerned is that um, uh, shortly after my book was published uh, he sued me from prison uh, for a libel on grounds that I uh, misrepresented uh, uh, the truth and that, um, that he was innocent And that not if he got out, but when he got out of prison, he would not be able to make a living because my book had uh, savaged his good name. So he was asked in the court to uh, reward him $62 million in damages against me. Um, I hasten to add every time I tell this story that that is the one and only time I've ever been sued in my life as a journalist, uh, and that number two, uh, the judge hearing the case uh, took exactly forty-two seconds to throw it out of court.
0: <laughs> Unreal.
1: True. True story. Did Did so, he actually um, show up
0: for the? Did he show up in court? Oh no,
1: no, no! They wouldn't let me. I, No, but, you know, this has got – it's a side story in a way, but it is kind of interesting, I suppose. And it's not necessarily just California, but California did have a reputation back then, maybe still does, as being a a mill for um, uh, uh, prisoner-initiated lawsuits. Uh, you know, people like, like Randy Kraft, who sit on death row day in and day out, don't have anything else to do. Uh, so they become amateur lawyers, and um, and it doesn't cost them anything because they're prisoners. So uh, so they file suits all the time. Randy sued uh, his lawyers, his own lawyers, uh, half a half dozen times. Um, one time, there was a woman representing him in uh, San Diego. And he sued her for malpractice. Uh, and because she was so busy, she didn't get around to answering. You have to answer the suit like in 30 days, I think, or something like that. She didn't answer it in time. So the judge uh, defaulted the the suit and ordered her to to pay Randy I don't know what it was, you know, maybe a couple thousand dollars, something like that. Um, she or ordered uh, the attorney to pay Randy uh, what he had sued for, the amount that he had sued for, because she didn't answer the uh, uh, the suit in time. You know, I, so <clears throat> people like uh, Kraft. See, this is a not only a hobby, but uh, once in a while you get lucky because somebody forgets to answer the suit uh, and uh, it becomes a profitable uh, hobby. So he added to his bank account by suing his own lawyer.
0: What prison is he in? He's
1: on death row in San Quentin. Uh, San Quentin is the California uh, state prison on the San Francisco Bay uh, directly across from Marin uh, County, and uh, one of the oldest prisons in the country, I guess.
0: Yeah, uh, it isn't isn't Scott Scott Peterson there? You
1: know, I I believe he is. As a matter of fact, I think he is.
0: Yeah, I believe he uh, is too.
1: He was convicted in California, right? Yeah. That's the case, then yes, he's on death row in San Quentin.
0: My last question for you, Dennis, is from your research, and I know you've had an opportunity to maybe look at some of these other serial killers, but can you tell us what sets Randy apart from all these other men that decided to just make killing one of their hobbies?
1: Well, he was brilliant. Um, I mean, not all of these guys are, um, are what you would call um, you know genius level. Uh, Randy was uh, an an early, um, you know, computer technician slash consultant. Uh, back when, you know, back before there was an internet, uh, he was uh, incredibly intelligent, um, and. <clears throat> And prolific, Uh, he killed, I think he still holds the record in California for uh, the number of people uh, killed by a single individual. Uh, And he got away with it for 12 years, uh, 13 years. I think, I may be wrong about this, but I think the only one who's, Um, gotten away with it that we know of longer than uh, Randy is the the golden state killer uh, who was just caught here a year or so ago through a DNA. Um, So, you know, I mean, those three characteristics right off the bat make Randy unique uh, in my estimation.
0: And, um,
1: and you know, I, he's, um, he also was busted uh, right at the onset of the age crisis. Uh, it's so, uh, you know, he, he is unique in my estimation, um, in part because, uh, because he came out as a serial killer at the same time that um, the AIDS virus became um, a, a serial killer in and of itself. And uh, the very concept of um, of being gay in America um, uh, exploded. Uh, not just in Southern California, but clear acro- across the country. Uh, it is ironic in a way that you know that gay rights, which ought to have been um, uh, ought to have been across the board for generations, came in, came to light in this country. Uh, At the same time that um, both HIV and serial murder among uh, in the gay community uh, surfaced. Uh, Terrible irony. Um, But um, nonetheless, I mean, uh, all of this characterized uh, Randy as uh, uh, unique and an uh any uh, uh an individual that uh um, <laughs> I, I I was gonna say towers above, but that sounds uh lofty. Uh that maybe um festers below <laughs> <laughs> uh the uh, your your standard, I mean, maybe standard's the wrong word, too, but the, the typical serial killer. Uh, he, he was, um, I don't know, Randy was a unique monster and continues to be so to this day.
0: Being that you mentioned earlier that no one had ever heard of a gay serial killer, but that they dropped the ball because of that, and he got away with it longer than he might have, had they just realized that, yes, there's a gay man and he's out here killing people left and right that are gay. So do you think that was a reason, a contributing factor as to why he was, you know, he was not apprehended sooner?
1: Absolutely. Yes. I mean, you know, y- y- you-, you hear this thing all the time in uh, police pre- procedurals, both fiction and nonfiction, that... um Uh, that law enforcement agencies do not talk to each other. You know, one of the big problems until uh, the FBI um, made its uh, uh, criminal information network uh, available to everyone in all communities across the country was that you could have a killing uh, in this community and the community next door knew nothing about it because law enforcement doesn't talk to each other. They keep it to themselves. You know, I don't know what the reasoning is for that. I guess it has something to do with ego and credit. You know, Geez, I'm detective so-and-so and I want to get the credit for um, uh, getting this guy so I won't share the information with somebody across the street. When you do that, for whatever your reasons might be, You automatically cut off information that would lead to the apprehension of these killers. And Randy uh, played law enforcement in Southern California uh, like uh, a violin. He knew that if he killed somebody in uh, Hermosa Beach and dumped the body in Palm Springs, that, uh, you know, the. Police departments in those two communities would never compare notes and say, well, maybe this guy uh, was killed in Hermosa Beach that we found in our backyard, or maybe uh, this guy that uh, was dumped in Palm Springs came from Hermosa Beach. That happened all the time. They did not talk to each other. They do now. So, you know, the likelihood of Randy getting away with it for 12 or 13 years is far less likely. But uh, back then, they did not. You don't have to look any further than the Golden State Killer uh, uh, case in point. He got away with rape and murder throughout Southern California, throughout California, simply by pulling up stakes and moving to a new community every six months or so. And because they didn't talk to each other, and they had no network looking at each other's information. They didn't compare notes. Only you know like thirty years after the fact, thanks to DNA, have they finally did did they finally put things put two and two together and come up with four?
0: That case is unbelievable as well. I just had an interview on that one, but you're exactly right. Uh, when they when they kill in one place and dump the body somewhere else, then you have a jurisdiction problem. And back then there was a real big one, and nobody talked to each other. So you're right about that. Great interview, Dennis. I want you to take a moment to tell my listeners where they can find out more information about you or any other books you're working on.
1: I've written 15 books now. Um, I've got my own website. You can sort of keep up with me there, uh, com. Um, I do have a book coming out, a new one uh, in May uh, called Operation White Rabbit, uh, which is about a uh, Harvard-educated chemist, uh, Leonard Picard, um, who was arrested in 2000 for manufacturing uh, LSD in uh, an abandoned missile silo in Kansas and is doing two life uh, sentences uh, in uh, Arizona uh, after being found guilty by a a Topeka, Kansas uh, uh, jury back in 2004. Uh, It's his life story. Uh, Another genius um, who uh, got caught up in the... um, LSD revolution Kim Leary and the like during the 60s and uh, wound up paying for it after going all the way to Harvard and uh, winning a degree in diplomacy at the uh, John Kennedy School Um, wound up paying for it with uh, his life. He's now 75 years old and in prison in Arizona. So it's his life story and um, a fascinating life story, I might add. Uh, that'll be out in May. Um, I'm working on a documentary with uh, Morgan Freeman's uh, company on uh, the life and times of Rodney King, uh, who is a friend of mine. Um, and um, I'm also working with um, uh, with a uh, screenwriter on a um, uh, limited series based on my book about uh, uh, Lou Wasserman, uh, Universal Studios, and uh, the hidden history of Hollywood. So I'm keeping busy.
0: Very good. Um... When your next book comes out, please, uh, let's keep that in mind for a future interview, okay? Absolutely. Many blessings to you, Dennis, and I really appreciate your time. All right. It's been great. Take care. All right. That's going to bring this one to a close, and I want to thank my special guest again, Dennis McDougall, for joining me. His book is called Angel of Darkness, The True Story of Randy Kraft and the Most Heinous Murder Spree, and it is available for you to pick up on Amazon. I know that you will enjoy that and I will definitely have Dennis join me again to talk about some of his other books. Please, if you haven't already, take a moment to rate and review the show and make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss a show. If you want to get bonus editions, I invite you to become a 7 Insider by going to patreon.com slash 7 Podcast and there's also a link in the show notes. I am your host, K-Town, and I'll see you next time on 7.